Several of you um, who read some of the updates from Ethiopia heard me or read that I said to you that one of the great problems in that country uh, among the Christians is with sexual ethics. Um, They have a great uh, difficulty um, putting together what has been uh, thousands of years worth of culture uh, with what the Bible teaches about how we use our bodies uh, and about marriage and divorce and so on. And so one of the, one of the uh, difficulties when I was giving them chances to ask questions is they, they would ask question after question after question about this one subject. Um, and some of the questions seemed to be out of left field and bizarre to us because we live in a culture where uh, you're not allowed to have more than one wife and so on. Um, and they asked uh, very many questions with all sorts of details and scenarios And one fellow at one point stood up and he asked a question that went something like this. Say that uh, in your village you have a man uh, who's married and he goes away on a journey. uh, And while he's away on his journey, um, uh, or when he returns from his journey, he finds out that his wife has become pregnant by another man. And um, he, he kicks her out of the house and um, finds out also in the meantime that she has HIV. And then later some people in the village come and tell him the reason why um, this happened is because she was raped, not because she was unfaithful to him. And so the man then takes her back uh, into his home, and she has HIV. And what is he to do? Is he to stay married to her, or is it okay for him to divorce her because he has HIV and now they can't uh, live in that way as a married couple anymore? Um, And the whole room, the whole room full of men who are preparing for the ministry begin to laugh at this question. And it was such a strange question that it, it appeared to me that it wasn't just out of nowhere, that it was a real-life scenario. And as the other people begin to laugh at this bizarre question, uh, I looked at the man who asked it and noticed he wasn't laughing at all. And so I answered the question, and then we went on with the teaching session, and I noticed that after we took our, our break... Um, that he wasn't in the session later in the day. He was gone. Um, And I spoke to him later, and I found out it was a real-life scenario, and um, it appeared that he was um, very much hurt by the way that everyone responded to his question. And I say that today because that's one example of what James is speaking about here. It's very possible for us, even without words, just laughter or demeanor, to harm other people deeply, because we don't speak um, encouragingly, but uh, discouragingly to them. And this man, um, I think, got over that, and he and I were able to talk together and pray together. Um, But what James says is true, and what um, the world says is not true. The world says sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. All of you know that that's not true. That is not even close to being true. In fact, James says that the tongue is like a world of iniquity. The tongue can hurt someone much worse than physical blows can ever hurt them. So we need to hear what James has to say and what the Spirit of God has to say through James today because all of us have been on both sides of that fence. All of us have had people say things that just cut us to the heart. And all of us have said things or done things like this laughter that hurt others more than we will ever know. So I want to just begin this morning by, by reminding you of, of many different ways that it is possible for us to harm others, to dishonor God, and to make ourselves look absolutely foolish 
by not taming our tongues. One would be insensitivity, which is the example I just gave. Either saying something to someone or responding in a certain way um, that just blows them away. They open their hearts and we say something or respond in a way uh, that wounds their hearts when they've opened them to us. Some of us are guilty of that. Another is gossip. Gossip can do so much harm. We hear a story and we tell it to another. It doesn't matter if the story is true or if it's not true or if we don't know it's true. We can ruin people's lives by gossiping and telling things that ought not to be told. Another way is a critical spirit. Some of us, more than others, uh, struggle with um, being perfectionists and therefore always criticizing others who don't seem to get it right. And we can harm people greatly by that. Complaining is another way that the the tongue is untamed. Things don't go the way we want, we whine, we complain. Or we just complain with our body language. Same, Same heart attitude. Crudeness or cursing. I'd like to to think that no one in, in here has problems with those things, but no one has tamed the tongue. And so some of us may have a problem with using inappropriate language or talking about inappropriate things or inappropriate things at inappropriate times, potty humor and so on. That's an untamed tongue. Name-calling. Name-calling is another way that, that our tongues are untamed, and we all do that as well. We have silly name-calling when we're children And it just gets more serious and sophisticated as we get older. Those of us who are quick to speak and slow to listen have untamed tongues. The Bible says the exact opposite. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Many of us are quick to speak and slow to listen. We're always talking about ourselves, telling everybody what what we have to say or what we did or where we've been and don't know how to listen to others. And that also is an untamed tongue. When we use God's name in vain, untamed tongue. Use his name as an expression of surprise. Use his name as an expression of frustration. Use his name in jokes. All these things are taking the Lord's name in vain and they are untamed tongues. Deceit. Usually we deceive with our tongues. This is an untamed tongue as well. Arguing. Sometimes there is a need to dispute with someone if they are harming another or dishonoring God, but most of us argue just because we like to argue and we want to be right. Arguing or uh, retaliating with our tongue. Someone says something to us, and so we say something smart aleck back to them. Lots of different ways that we sin with our tongues. And I mentioned them all this morning because not all of us will do uh, all ten of those that I mentioned, but all of us are guilty of some of them. Some of us more than others, but all of us are guilty of having a tongue that is not tamed, a tongue that is not used to glorify God only and to encourage others. And that's what an untamed tongue is. Paul says in Ephesians that we should only speak if we are building one another's up in the Lord. Any other speech, whether it's just us running our mouths so that we can uh, hear ourselves talk or whether it's harming other people with our tongues, anytime we're not speaking in order to praise the Lord or to build others up, our tongue has run loose. Just like an animal that's supposed to stay in the fence or on a leash. If it's not in the fence or it's not on a leash, it's it's loose. If our tongues aren't doing the purposes which God created them for, they are loose. They are untamed. So we need to think about this. And we need to think about the motivation for why we do these things. Because the, the root problem is not the tongue. The root problem is always the heart, right? What is it in the heart that makes us deceive 
or makes us criticize or makes us argue or makes us quick to speak and slow to listen? Why do we do these things? Always the answer is selfishness. Always. Take any one of those different ways of uh, misusing your tongue that I mentioned, and the answer is always selfishness. We're insensitive towards others because we're only thinking about ourselves. We haven't thought about how they might feel in the situation that they're in when they're opening their hearts to us. We gossip in order to tear others down. Why? Because when you tear others down, it, by comparison, makes you look better. Selfishness. We criticize others, usually to get them to do what we want them to do. You're not doing this right. And if I criticize you enough, maybe you'll change. We complain because we're selfish. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? We use uh, foul language or crude language also because we're selfish. Most of the time we do it to uh, get attention to ourselves or to our grievance, right? There's no reason to have to use foul language, but we use it because it makes a splash. And when we make a splash, we draw attention to ourselves or to our soapbox issue that we're talking about. We call names, again, to tear others down so that by comparison we feel like we're building ourselves up. We're quick to speak and slow to listen because we only care about what we have to say and not about others. We misuse God's name because, again, we only are thinking of ourselves. We use His name as an expression of surprise or frustration because God is not in our minds. Our desires, our personal desires are what are foremost in our mind. And so if something doesn't go the way I want, I use God's name in vain because I am more important than He is. We deceive others to gain an advantage for ourselves. That's, what, that's why deceiving, lying is wrong. Because it gains an advantage for ourselves and harms others. So the, the commandment says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. There's a reason why it says that. Because the reason why bearing false witness, lying, is so wrong is because it is against our neighbor to gain an advantage for ourselves. We argue and retaliate towards people again because we want to promote ourselves and our agendas and our reputations. So, many ways that our tongues can be untamed. One motivation. We love ourselves more than we love God and we love others. So, if any of those arrows that I shot out hit you, um, be glad for that because God is not just showing you uh, one sin problem that you need to take care of, but He's showing you your heart. And He's showing me my heart, that our hearts are selfish. And one of the ways that that shows is when our tongues run wild. Now, when we look at these 12 verses, uh, I just wrote down three questions that I want to ask and try to answer from these 12 verses. Uh, Three questions. The first is this. How serious really is the problem? How serious is the problem of an untamed tongue? I want to give three, three answers to that. First, it's serious in that verse 2, it's a universal problem. Look at verse 2 again. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now Paul starts with the general, right? We all stumble in many ways. We all sin in many ways. We are all sinners by nature. And the book of Romans, I said Paul, I meant James. The book of Romans, though, written by Paul, uh, teaches us the same thing. No one does good. No one seeks after God. Not even one. We are all sinners. And therefore we all sin. 
And therefore, reading on in verse 2, we all sin with our tongues. In fact, he goes so far to say this. If you could find someone who never sinned with their tongue, you could find someone who never sinned. But he says, you can't. No one is perfect. And so we know that if you could be perfect by taming your tongue and no one is perfect, then no one tames their tongue. Everyone in the world struggles with this sin. Everyone in the world sins in this way. And I would go so far as to say everyone in the world sins in this way every day, multiple times. We're all sinning with our tongues. Our tongues are the easiest way for us to sin. Sometimes under our breath, sometimes out loud. But the easiest way for us to sin is with the tongue. And so James can say if someone has this right, they must have everything else right. But no one does. It's a universal problem. David says in Psalm 51, Surely in iniquity my mother conceived me. What he meant is I was born a sinner. And you were born a sinner. And because we were born sinners, we're going to sin. And because we're going to sin, the easiest way for us to sin is with our tongues. And if that is true, all of us have big problems with verses 1-12 through 12 of James chapter 3. It's a universal problem, sinning with the tongue. Secondly, it's an unconquerable problem. That's hope-giving, isn't it? Verses 7 and 8, no one's going to tame the tongue. Every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. It's an unconquerable problem. You're going to have this problem as long as you live in this world. You're going to struggle with sinning with your lips and with your tongue. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning we cannot do anything about our sins. We can't do anything to save ourselves. And now James narrows that down and says, now let's talk about this specific sin, sinning with your tongue. You can't do anything to fix yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot correct yourself. You cannot pull up your bootstraps. You are a sinner by nature. And therefore you will sin in this way. And you will not overcome it on your own. So, when he says no one can tame the tongue, what he means is we have a a, a spiritual inability to do this. A spiritual inability, just like every other spiritual inability that we have. However, verse 7 is very interesting to me. Because in verse 7, he says, Every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Isn't that interesting? Is it harder to get someone else to do what you want or to get yourself to do it? Usually it's harder to get other people to do it, right? That's why we all say, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Now, is it harder to get someone else to do something the right way, or is it harder to get an animal to do what you want? Now, some animals are easily tamed, some animals not so much. But he says all the animals, human beings, have found ways to tame them, to turn them into productive, uh, useful citizens of the world, so to speak. It's interesting, isn't it, that that human beings have found ways and put forth the effort to tame all these animals, and yet we don't put forth the effort to tame our tongues. Now, he is saying in verse 8 that we can't. We're spiritually incapable, but we don't even make the effort. I was watching a a program um, on the plane while I was on my way home yesterday, and um, it was about these, I think they were um, maybe college students or something, but um, there were two teams, and the project was 
um, to, to turn a person into a giraffe, basically. They had these long electronic legs and, and legs that hooked into your arms and these things that you could control to make it eat and so on so that a person could be inside a giraffe suit and look just like a giraffe um, and, and do this for a movie set or, or something like that. Um, all this effort must have taken weeks and weeks and weeks, thousands and thousands of dollars to put all this stuff together to make a human being look like a giraffe so that they could better understand giraffes and, and know about giraffes and tame giraffes. All that effort for something that is absolutely pointless. I mean, no offense if you're any of you are biology majors, but that is absolutely pointless to try to get a human being to be able to act like a giraffe so we can understand giraffes. All that effort into taming animals and very little effort by most of us into taming our tongues. And people spend thousands of dollars to take their dogs and, and, and get them to walk in a circle around other dogs. And we don't put very much effort at all into taming our tongues. And not just with animals, other things as well. I mean, you can talk about putting together a business proposal or getting your yard to look the way you want it, or getting your golf swing to look the way you want it, or whatever it is. We put effort into so many things that are of, eternal, uh, val- or of no eternal value, or very little eternal value. And here James is saying one of our biggest problems with, it, with our tongues, and we don't put effort at all, many of us, into correcting this problem. So it's not just a physical, I mean a spiritual inability, it is that. We cannot tame our tongues on our own. But it's also that we don't want to. It's also that we care very much more about taming animals and beasts and reptiles and so on than we do about taming our own tongues. So it's a universal problem. It's an unconquerable problem. And then in verses 9 and 10, James says it's a problem that must be conquered. It's an unconquerable problem, but it's a problem that must be conquered. Listen to verses 9 and 10 again. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And here's the key. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. No one can tame the tongue, but everyone should tame their tongue. Do you hear him saying that? No one can tame the tongue, but it ought not to be this way. We're spiritually incapable of taming our tongues, and yet James is saying by inference in verses 9 and 10, tame your tongue. It ought not to be this way. How can he say that? Well, one, because he knows what he has already alluded to, that we don't want to tame our tongues. Even though we can't spiritually complete the task on our own, we don't even want to. So part of what he's saying is just to get us to see we ought to want to tame our tongues, even though we know we'll never fully do it in this life. But also he can say it for this reason. The same reason why the man with a shriveled hand could not open his hand and Jesus said to him, open your hand. Because there is power in Christ for us to do what we are spiritually incapable of doing. Right? Similarly, the Bible tells us that no one seeks for God. The Bible tells us we can't come to God unless the Father draws us to him. We can't come to Christ unless the Father draws us to Him. And yet the Bible also says again and again and again, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. On one hand, the Bible says, you can't do it. You can't do it on your own. And on the other hand, it says, do it. Believe. And how do we put that together? By understanding that if we are to believe, God by His Holy Spirit must give us the ability and the want to to believe. 
And if we have believed, it's because God, by his Holy Spirit, has given us the ability and the want to to believe. Same thing with taming the tongue. We cannot tame the tongue, and yet, James says, tame the tongue. How? By believing that the Spirit of God, based on the finished work of Jesus, will give us the ability to tame our tongues. We'll never be perfect in this world, but we can grow. And we must grow, he says. These things ought not to be this way. We must grow in this. How can we do it? Because Christ has died and given us the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us the ability to change. Let me read to you 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you are healed. Jesus died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Can we live to righteousness on our own? No. But Jesus died so that through His power we might. Can we tame the tongue on our own? No. But Jesus died so that through His power we might. So if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, then you have the power to begin growing in this area of sin with your lips and your tongue. You have the power to change if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, the solution is not to try harder today at taming your tongue. The solution is to come to Christ. This is not the only sin that you have if you're not in Christ. This is just the tip of the iceberg. The only way you overcome this or any other sin is through Jesus who died so that we might live to righteousness. So that's the first question. Why is it so serious? Why is it so serious? Because it is universal, it is unconquerable, and yet it must be conquered. We must tackle this problem. Second question. Why is an untamed tongue so sinful? Why is it so sinful? I mean, if we all do it, if everybody does it, and if we're sin by nature and therefore we sin with our tongues, why so bad? Well, if it's in the house, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And he's beginning to talk there about how sinning with our tongue harms our own lives and and misdirects our own lives. But also we can see from what we've said already and from the illustration that I began with that our little tongues can really misdirect other people's lives as well, can't they? And he gives these illustrations. Bits in the mouths of horses are very small things and yet you pull that rein and that horse is going to go where you want him to go every time. Same thing with a ship. Now, most of us don't go on ships anymore, but we all know how it works. There's a rudder at the bottom, and in comparison to the ship, it's a very small thing. And yet, you can turn your motorboat in a circle very tightly simply by that one rudder that's at the bottom of that motor. To use an illustration that all of us would be more familiar with, because we may not be familiar with horses or ships, think about a light switch. I mean, you turn the light switch off and the whole room goes black, especially if it's nighttime. One little small instrument changes everything. And Paul is saying that about our own lives, but he's saying that also, excuse me, James is saying that about our own lives, but also about the lives of other people. Our small little tongues, our tiny little words, that one little comment 
can misdirect someone's entire life. It can ruin their entire day. It can send them on a course of uh, terrible destruction or despair. Let me read you a couple of verses in Proverbs that teach this uh, a little bit more uh, directly and to the point. Turn to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. Keep your finger in James, but turn to Proverbs 12, 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. You can just imagine yourself walking into a room with a big long sword and just whipping it everywhere. How many people you could harm. And the author of Proverbs says a loose tongue is the same thing. You go into a room and let your tongue loose for just a moment. There's no telling who or how many you may harm. Then turn to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That sounds like a strong statement, doesn't it? Death and life are in the power of the tongue? I mean, come on. I know that words may hurt me. Uh, Words aren't like sticks and stones. But surely my tongue doesn't have the power of death and life. Yes, it does. The Bible says that it does. And I'll give you a couple examples of what it means. Naboth. Remember the story of Naboth from 2 Kings? Naboth was a, a little important, unimportant nobody in Israel, but he owned a nice vineyard that was next to King Ahab's palace. King Ahab's summer home palace, not the palace in Samaria, but his second home. Next door was Naboth's vineyard. And Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard for himself. Ahab was the king. Ahab thought he could have anything he wanted. So he went to Naboth and he said, Naboth, give me your vineyard. And Naboth said, listen, God says that uh, every individual's land must stay in his own family so that the tribes of Israel will remain uh, in their inheritance. So he said, it's not that I'm disrespecting you, king, but God has told us not to sell our land to other families. And so I can't I can't sell you my vineyard. So Ahab went home and he laid on his bed and he whined and cried and his wife said, what's wrong with you? She said, I'll get Naboth's vineyard. And so she hired uh, two men. The Bible calls them worthless fellows. And on a particular day they called a feast and they put uh, Naboth in the center of the table. And when the feast began, she had paid these two worthless fellows to stand up and say, Naboth blasphemed God and Naboth blasphemed the king. Because if you blaspheme God or blaspheme the king, punishment, death. If Naboth is dead, then Ahab can take his vineyard. Two men who never met Naboth before probably, two men who were motivated by greed, used two sentences, Naboth blasphemed God and Naboth blasphemed the king to get this man hanged. Life and death are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs says. More familiar to use the story of Jesus. 
Jesus never committed any crime. Pilate said, I find no reason to accuse this man or to sentence this man. But more worthless fellows came forward in that case and made false accusations against Jesus. And then the crowds joined in. Crucify him, crucify him. And because a handful of people said crucify him, and because a handful of people told lies about him, he hung on the cross between two thieves. Everyone knew he'd done nothing wrong. But because of a few liars and a few people who decided that they would join the crowd, Jesus went to the cross and died. That may sound extreme to you, but there is no telling when we are using our tongues inappropriately what the results will be. There is no telling what the final results will be. People commit suicide because they have constantly been lashed with other people's tongues. People kill 32 people in Blacksburg, Virginia because their whole lives they've been beat down with other people's tongues. Does that excuse them? Not a chance. But it is to say that our harm of other people with our tongues can lead to death. It is that serious. So first, sinning with the tongue is serious and sinful because it harms others. But secondly, it's sinful because it harms ourselves. The end of that verse in Proverbs. Life and death are in the power of the tongue and those who misuse their tongue will eat the fruit of that sin. Our misuse of our tongue can come back and bite us as well. Look at verse 5b through 6. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. See what he says there? Our tongues, these small members of our body, can ruin our lives as well. They defile the entire body. In other words... One little sin with the tongue makes you an ugly sinner. These sins with our tongues are no less than punching someone in the face or slitting someone's throat. They are just the same. They defile us just the same. And then he says they set on fire the course of our life. Our constant running of our mouth, our constant uh, loosing of our tongues can ruin the course of our life. That's what he's saying. Ask Don Imus. He said something incredibly stupid and insensitive and his whole career is over. He worked for his whole life to become one of the most well-known radio figures in our country and his career ended in one day with one sentence. He should have read this verse. So should you. Your whole life can be thrown off course. Your whole life can be, in some senses, ruined because you cannot control what you say. And more than that, our tongues can harm us because, he says there in the end of verse 6, our tongues are set on fire by hell. Our tongues are set on fire by hell and, by extension, our tongues and our sins with our tongues are worthy of hell. Proverbs 10 says in a couple of different places that a chattering fool or a babbling fool comes to ruin. 
And I think the author of Proverbs means mainly in a temporal sense, but we know that a sin is worthy of hell. That's why these sins are so problematic. Not just because they harm others, not just because they can ruin our lives here and now, but an untamed tongue sends us to hell. And all of us have an untamed tongue. So all of us have a problem. We need a Savior. Thirdly, an untamed tongue is so sinful because it harms the reputation of God. Our tongues can harm others. Our tongues harm ourselves. Our tongues harm the reputation of God. Listen again to verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Here's what James is getting at. He's getting at the same thing Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and new things have come. James is saying if new things have really come, if we really have a new creature in Christ, a new nature in Christ, then it makes no sense for us to continue using our tongues as we do. It goes against our very nature. It goes contrary to what God has done in our lives through Christ if we continue to sin and sin and sin without growing and without repentance and without change. And the result of that is that God's name is defamed. God's reputation is harmed. Because the world looks at us and they say, these people are supposed to be God's people and they talk just like we do. Yeah, maybe they don't curse anymore. Great. They have nine other ways that they use their tongues all the time to harm one another. They're just like us. They say that they have new hearts. They say that they're born again. They're just like us. God's no big deal. God doesn't change people. They're just using religion as a crutch. They think they're going to go to heaven at the end of the road, and so they're just using God to get what they want. But God's no real thing. God is no big deal. That's what people think about us when we sin. And if the easiest way to sin is with our tongues, then the easiest way to harm the reputation of God is to say that we're Christians, to say that we have a new heart, and continue to act as though our heart is filled with the same bitterness as everyone else's. And James uses these illustrations. If you have a well that's supposed to bring out fresh water and it starts to bring out bitter water, Something's wrong with the well. Bitter water doesn't come out of nowhere. Something's wrong with the well. If you have a tree that you think is a fig tree and it begins to produce some other kind of fruit, it ain't a fig tree, right? I mean, it's crazy to plant what you think is an apple tree and then when it produces some other fruit to keep calling it an apple tree. And it's crazy to call yourself a Christian to say that the seeds of the gospel have been planted in your life and then when you see no fruit to continue to call yourself a Christian. It doesn't make any sense. It goes contrary to our nature. And when we call ourselves Christians and don't produce the fruit of the gospel, then we misrepresent the gospel and we harm the reputation of the God of the gospel. And I preached on the Sermon on the Mount while I was in Ethiopia, and there's a very similar passage there in Matthew chapter 7 that I want to read to you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 20. 
Jesus talks about the eternal repercussions of those who say that they're apple trees and don't produce apples. Listen. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. You see James and Jesus talking about the same thing. If you say you're a fig tree and you don't produce figs, they cut you down. If you say that you're a Christian and you don't produce fruit, God cuts you down, throws you into the fire. The repercussions for an untamed tongue, a tongue that is never growing to Christ-likeness, is that we were never really Christians in the beginning. And if we were never really Christians, then the repercussions are to be thrown into the lake of fire. So, for three reasons, an untamed tongue is incredibly sinful. It harms others, it harms ourselves, and it harms the reputation of God. So, again, we need to remind ourselves of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. That's good news. Because if we just read James 3, there's judgment hanging over our heads. But Christ died once and for all, the just for the unjust, the tamed tongue for the untamed tongue, so that He might bring us to God. Our hope is not in ourselves, it is in Christ. Our hope to tame our tongues is not in ourselves, it's in Christ. Our hope for forgiveness is not in ourselves, it is in Christ. So that's the second question. Why is an untamed tongue so sinful? Third and final question. Why are teachers, verse 1, judged more strictly? Why are teachers judged more strictly in relation to their tongues? Verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. How does that fit? What does that have to do with what James is talking about? He leads off this passage with this verse about teachers and stricter judgment, and then he goes on and starts speaking about taming the tongue. How does this fit? Well, it fits because those who are teachers have a much greater opportunity to sin with their tongues. They have much greater responsibility with their tongues. They have much greater authority when they use their tongues. And so it's much more serious if we are teachers and we have untamed tongues. It's much more serious if you are a teacher. And he doesn't mean a school teacher necessarily. He means a teacher of God's Word. If you're a teacher of God's Word, you teach in the Sunday school, you lead a Bible study, you preach... It is much more serious if your, tame is, if your tongue is untamed. Now let me mention, I just mentioned three ways or three reasons that's true. Let me mention them to you again. First, teachers have much more opportunity to sin with their tongues, don't they? For the last 30 minutes or 35 or some of you who keep track can tell me when I get done how long it's been. But for the last little while, I've been talking constantly and none of you have been saying anything. You haven't had an opportunity to sin with your tongues for the last little while, have you? I have had much opportunity. And as some of you tell me, I have lots of opportunities because I speak for so long. But those who teach 
have many opportunities to sin with their tongues, don't they? Because they're constantly talking. It comes with the territory. So if you're a teacher and you're going to stand up in front of a class or a congregation or sit in front of a Bible study, you're going to have very many opportunities to, to, to sin with your tongue, to scold others inappropriately, to say things that are inappropriate, to use inappropriate um, thoughts or, or humor, or whatever it is. There are lots of opportunities when you're speaking in front of people to sin with your tongue. That's one reason why he says teachers will be judged more strictly. And you need to pray for me and for the other uh, people in this church that teach that God would help us, that God would make us exemplary in this area. Secondly, though, those who are teachers are judged more strictly because those who teach carry by, by weight of their simple profession or their task, they carry more authority when they use their tongues, right? I can say lots of things to you, and because I'm the pastor, many of you will listen to me. And there's a lot of good in that because the Bible has given authority to the elders in the church in, in many respects. Same thing in a Sunday school class. Well, this guy's supposed to know the Bible, and so I guess what he's telling us is true. So you listen to the words that I say or that another teacher says with a little bit more weight than you might listen to someone else. That means that I have an even greater reason to make sure that I get it right. To make sure that I use my tongue well. Because if I misuse it, I will mislead many more people than those who might not be teachers. So that's a second reason. When you're a teacher, there's more authority behind your words. Thirdly, when you're a teacher, there's more responsibility for you to get it right. One of the ways that I can misuse my tongue in addition to those things that we began with this morning, is simply by teaching you things that aren't true. Whether I intend to teach you things that aren't true or I just do it out of negligence or laziness, if I stand before you and teach you things that aren't true, I'm misleading a whole congregation of people. I'm sinning with my tongue. And my responsibility, and those of you who teach have the same responsibility, is to make sure that you get it right for God's people. It's a great task. It's an awesome task. It's a happy task, but it is a very heavy task. I have a great responsibility to make sure I use my tongue to teach you to praise God and to love others and not to use it in an inappropriate way. So, James says, teachers will be judged more strictly. Now, having said that then, we need again to look at Christ. Because we cannot tame our tongues apart from Christ. We cannot be forgiven for our sins apart from Christ. And we cannot know, really, how to speak as we should without looking at the example of Christ. Look one more time at First Peter. This time, chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. He's saying this to Christians in general. It especially applies to those who are teachers. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Isn't verse 22 interesting? Committed no sin. And that's one of the main things we've got to understand about Jesus if we want to be saved. Or that we must explain about Jesus if we want others to be saved. They have to believe, we have to believe in a Savior who committed no sin. Otherwise, He couldn't have died for our sin. If He committed sin, He had to die for His own sin. 
We have to get that right. But right next to he committed no sin, the one example that Peter gives of this fact is that his mouth didn't sin. Isn't that interesting? It fits right with what James is saying. If your mouth is clean, the whole rest of your body must be clean because it's easier to sin with your mouth than any other way. And so with Jesus, he said he never sinned, and here's proof of that. There was not any deceit in his mouth, and when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, and so on. Christ has set us the perfect example. If you want to know how not to sin with your mouth, you go and you read again and again and again the things that Jesus said, the way that Jesus talked the way that Jesus taught, and so on. It's amazing when you look at Jesus that all throughout, all the times that he taught, all the people that he dealt with, all the things that he said, all the disappointments that were there, he never sinned with his tongue. He's the one that we must look to for help, for forgiveness, and for an example of what we are to become. Now let me conclude by saying this to you about James chapter 3, and in many ways the whole book of James. James chapter 3 is what, um, when you're studying theology, you would call it a law passage. In other words, James chapter 3 is not mainly directly teaching us about the character of God. It's not mainly teaching us about the facts of the gospel. It's not mainly teaching us about the benefits of the gospel or the promises of God. James chapter 3 is mainly teaching us the requirements of God. Some passages teach us the requirements of God. Others teach us other things. This is one of those passages that's mainly teaching us about the requirements of God. It's giving us God's law for our lives. So Alistair Begg, who's a pastor up in Cleveland, uh, says it like this about law passages like James 3, like the Ten Commandments and so on, that the law of God is a mirror in which we see our sin. Law of God is not a ladder up which we climb to heaven as though we could somehow obey all of God's laws and save ourselves. That's not what the law of God is for. The law of God, passages like James 3, are a mirror in which we see our sin. We look at James 3, and what should be happening most of all this morning is that we should be feeling guilty. That should be the biggest thing that's happening in your heart, is that you should feel convicted by the Spirit of God that you sin in this way and that something has to change. I hope that's what's going on in your heart. That's what should be going on in your heart if the Spirit has helped me and I've delivered this faithfully. So this is a law passage. When you have a law passage, uh, the main aspect, again, is to see your sin. Now, there is the aspect of what do I need to do to change? And we've talked about that. What do we need to do? We need to tame our tongues. How do we do it? We look to Christ and we listen to Him and we, by God's Spirit, Imitate him. So there is that aspect of the law telling us things that we ought to do and then we try by the Spirit's might to do them. But there's also this aspect of the mirror, the conviction. And here's the thing. And this is again from from Alistair Begg. He points out the law is like a mirror that helps us see our sin, but no one ever washed their face in the mirror. Right? Right? The mirror cannot make you clean. The mirror can show you your sinfulness. The mirror can show you the dirt on your face, but the mirror can't clean your face. If you want your face to be clean, you have to look away from the mirror and look down at the sink and get the water and the soap and clean your face. And then look back at the mirror and see if your face is really as clean as you think it is. The mirror can't clean your face. The law of God is a mirror. The law of God cannot make you clean. 
James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, cannot save you. It can only show you that you need to be saved. You can try with all of your might to put into practice the things James is talking about, but that cannot save you because no one can on their own tame their tongue. When you see your face in a mirror, you turn to the fountain for cleansing. So the greatest thing beyond the conviction of sin that should happen now as we come to a conclusion is that all of us should be turning now from the mirror to the fountain that has been opened for sinners once and for all, the blood of Jesus. We do not look forever at the law of God. We look at the law of God so that we can see our sins, so that we will be moved to look to the Savior. So if you are here this morning and you have looked to the Savior and you're realizing again this morning that you're still a sinner, maybe you're realizing that you're more of a sinner than you thought you were. Maybe you're realizing that you haven't grown as much as you should have. The solution is not, well, I'm already a Christian and so now I've got to make myself right by trying harder. No, the solution is I've looked to Christ once, I've looked to Christ twice, and I need to keep looking to Christ for forgiveness, for strength, and for my example. And if you're here this morning and you've never really looked to Christ, you've been trying all along to save yourself with the mirror, to clean yourself with the mirror. You know that you're a sinner. God's convicted you of that. And you've tried your best to do better. And you're not doing better. Here's a great piece of news for you. You're not going to do better. You can't clean yourself in the mirror. So stop trying in your own strength to save yourself and look to Christ who has come to save you. He has come to change you. He has come to give you the example of who God wants you to be. He has shed His blood so that you might know God, so that you might walk in newness of life, and so that you might be changed and tame your tongue. Father, we pray now that feeling convicted about the way we sin with our tongues, that we would not try to save ourselves. We pray that we would not try to use the mirror to clean ourselves, that we wouldn't try to use the law to save ourselves, but God, that we would let the law and the conviction that it brings drive us to the Savior. And we pray that as we come to the Savior, that you would, by your Son, give us the strength to change And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.